you have found the Booking Glass Forum, and we are here to challenge the intellectual status quo and to return to reason amidst the propaganda madness of info wars and psyops pressed out of a 24-hour news cycle. And remember, the lies are many, but the truth is one. And hey, we're back here, and we're in episode three. We had a hard time doing this episode. Had a computer meltdown. So we're trying some different things here. And as we begin our review of the historical perspectives, it becomes clear that the philosophical instrument of violent revolt becomes a useful tool in the hands of the Illuminati. And as we shall come to see, the violent ideology, which requires antagonism and growing vitriol to be increased so greatly in the civil society as to create a conflagration inciting class warfare, or what would be the beginning of class warfare before it was actually spelled out in those terms, and ultimately would lead to a slave uprising. And this is all happening just as abolition becomes a clear and irrefutable shift on the horizon of history. As we see the political rise of abolition taking shape as a movement, then we see the opportunism of the agenture of the Illuminati as they begin to use the quickly fading and archaic sale of human chattel as a weapon of destabilization and chaos and social revolt. And as we will we'll see, they intended to make the transition of slaves to become free men as destructive and catastrophic of an event as possible. And as the Illuminati and Hegel and the other networks are working hard to capitalize on this imbalance of power, we can see that these same philosophers in Ingolstadt in Bavaria had sat up in their, their high towers and their, in their universities there for many a century and never lifted a finger to discuss the slave trade or the inequities of, of the inhumanities and the atrocities of the slave trade. In fact, as we will go on to find out later, the Pope held many slaves and even the Jesuits in Georgetown had to apologize profusely for this hypocrisy. And as we're moving forward, we're gonna build the case here today and we're looking at Hegel's work and he was a very influential and important philosopher, but it also turns out later on as researchers and historians will find out later that he was the second in line to lead the Illuminati after Adam Weishaupt. And it wasn't immediately apparent in contemporary history, but that was actually the fact. And Adam Weishaupt, he was codenamed Spartacus and within the, uh, the ranks of the Illuminati. And of course, Spartacus would lead a widespread and successful slave revolt in Imperial Rome. And as we're looking closer here, we're looking at the effects of in the, the intentions of the Illuminati in the, the outbreaks of violent revolution in France and Haiti. And we'll look at how, how Hegel would go very into depth into what was called this, the master-slave dialectic. And this dialectic, or this conflicting, uh, this agitation, was actually designed by the Illuminati to create as much like we said, is to make the move from slavery to free men as catastrophic as possible. And they were in the habit of creating multiplying agents. Uh, they would create groups that were meant to be radical propagandists. They were created restricted organizations for, for the purpose of being change agents. And their incendiary propaganda would create and force a society to a certain dialectic process. For instance, you had the Knights of the Golden Circle who were actively involved with the Confederacy to keep the slave trade intact. And then you would have the Knights of the Ku Klux Klan, the KKK, were famously riding around in their hoods. Anonymous men riding around 
and creating as much unrest between slaves and landowners as possible. And you can see that in France during the violent revolution, there were Jacobins operating also. And you had crypto Calvinists in the mix who were Calvinists who were in the background, but were operating as if they weren't. And all this, and Hegel himself and his, his uh, death would lead to the Russell connection uh, at the time of his death, which was in the 1830s. And at that time, um, the creator of the Skull and Bones Society was uh, William Russell, and he would travel to Germany at the time of Hegel's death. And he was the one who famously helped to bring about the, the Skull and Bones Society in Yale. And, um, and at the same time, the Knights of Columbus were created in New Haven, Connecticut also. So you have the Skull and Bones Order at Yale and the Knights of Columbus Order being created um, which is a, a papal, uh, an order of ultramontane papal knights being created in New Haven, Connecticut in the 1830s. And we might add that the, the Pope held slaves for centuries and there was never a part of the feudal system of nobility and, and liege lords and kings and serfs. It was never a part of the program to, to make everyone equal and to have freedoms and to free slaves. Okay, ultimately, this was a, the ultimate revolution against the old order of, um, of antiquity in the Dark Ages. And as we're moving forward, we'll have to look at the fact that ultimately we in the colonies were looked at as slaves and heretics and witches. And we were really seditious enemies to the crown as, as colonists of the British colony. And, and these are the same kings in Spain and, and the same throne in England and the same papal system that tried to ensure that the Americans would never be free. And of course, we might point out that American freemen had worked very hard to make sure that the Inquisition would never arrive in the New World. And they had come up with a way to balance a political dialectic very well in America, and this might be pointed out. In France was the archetype of the social revolt of anarchy and flames, where thousands of people, including the king, were guillotined right into the streets, and their heads rolled right in the streets. And then in America, we have what would be a, a peaceful transition of power from the monarch to the people. And they, with no further antagonism or warfare, after they had their independence, the revolution was ended. So it's a different kind of dynamic between the American Revolution and the French. And as we look at different documents and we frame the historical reference of the author, we can begin to compare the consistencies and develop a compositional view of the true dilemma and we try to do this free of bias, come to a realistic view of the events through the lens of others' presuppositions and through the rendering of their perceptions. So we want to understand them in their time. Again, the power of the Illuminati can most clearly be evinced by their influence in the, the sudden and ubiquitous outbreak and sheer havoc that was wreaked by the world revolution. And so it was through the impetus of intellectual weaponry and dangerous ideas, which being well-crafted for rationalizing and encouraging violent, the violent overthrow of all religion, government, and all aspects of the civil society. We are faced with this dilemma today, and the shape of the conflict has changed very little. Are those calling for violent revolt doing so to help or to harm? And as we see that they so easily created the crisis between the master and slave dialectic, we can see that today the same social agitation is useful for those who are, are using it between blacks and whites. And so we're going to look at some very different texts which are revealing the truth that rests at the heart of the discussion. And, and who are the Illuminati? And what are they concerned with? And we're not talking about the idea of um, hooded men 
in the internet who can control the weather and, and can the tectonic plates. We're, we're talking about men who lived in the 17th and the 18th century who are aristocrats and who use different corruption and different methods and bribery to ultimately create a network of control and a field of political control that went across different polemics. So you have different kings and different uh, fiefdoms and different you know areas between the Spanish and the British and the French, and they created a network that was uh, it could have influence across the board. Now Hegel was never a slave, yet he is very invested in using his intellect to develop a method of using the master-slave dynamic uh, between those who are under authority and, and those who are, or who, who have authority, or those who who have banknotes and those who do not have banknotes, and creating a conflict and justifying a violent outcome. And as we were researching these very dangerous ideological constructs, these are philosophical mechanics that are designed to create radical conflict and radical change. And as we said before, we don't agree with all the material that we must examine, but we are able to objectively map out the motives of the foundational tenets of the cultural theory that is framed by the authors. And so the consequences of the thesis is unmistakable. It is reason to destroy and the intention is self-evident. The overthrow of all society by inciting those under authority and under the social construct of authority to kill those they believe to have authority over them. And through these philosophies, they have developed today these anarchists who are tearing down statues everywhere on the news. So these excerpts are from the Illuminati. You can find it on the internet. It was published in 2013. Control is all about inflexible rules. You must obey. In a dialectic society, there are no such rules. No such control is transferred from the rulers to the people as it should be. When it comes to rules, hui bono, always those who set the rules, never those who are subjected to them. The dialectic smashes all the old systems of control. It smashes the power of the established elites that live by the old rules. The dialectic permits the intelligent reevaluation of all values and analyzes every institution on earth and provides a mechanism for bringing it to evolutionary dialectic perfection. Quotes, quotes, if you are giving the world the best you have, what world are you saving it for? That's what it's all about. Everyone giving their best and becoming the best they could possibly be. All the institutions of the world should be geared up for that purpose, maximizing human potential, actualizing all of our greatest possibilities. Capitalism, sterile, idiotic, spiritually dead, imagination-free, prevailing ideology of the Western world sets as its highest goal the consumption of junk in order to enrich the elite who control the manufacturer of the junk. The OWO have no interest in maximizing your potential, only their own. Capitalism is happy to take the worst from you providing it makes someone a fast buck. We can't let them hold us back any longer. So that's, you kind of get the sweep of that. They're really calling for a revolt. So we're going to move down here to this little section about, about Hegel right here. As for the German philosopher Hegel, he is one of the most revered members of the history of the Illuminati and towering figure in philosophy. And Hegel was fascinated by what would happen when two self-consciousnesses first encounter each other. When, and it goes on to say, when prisoners of war are being broken, one of the main tactics used is to dehumanize them and depersonalize them and refuse to acknowledge their humanity. Their existence has is nothing more than objects. Many people have gone insane when subject, subjected to this treatment. If you traveled the world and you were never once acknowledged as a human being by anyone you met, if you were ignored at every turn, if you were treated as, quite simply, we cannot be human without human acknowledgement of our humanity by others. Most people take their identity for granted. 
but it, it is an astonishingly fragile. And as many prisoners of war discovered to their cost, the Jews in Nazi death camps were stripped of all their humanity. They were turned metaphorically and even literally, in some cases, into objects. One survivor, the great writer Primo Levi, once dared to ask the a guard why regarding some incident. The response he got was infinitely chilling. There, here there is no why. Recognition is not just important, it is a matter of life and death. Our whole existence hinges on it. Without it, we are objects. We are not human. We must, we might as well be dead as well. Hegel says that in the first encounter between two self-consciousnesses, the outcome is so critical, so much is riding on it that in effect, it becomes a fight to the death. Yet death is not to happen. If either is killed, the other is denied the possibility of recognition and loses the chance to be a proper self-conscious. And remember that Hegel says that a self-conscious cannot exist in the absence of another self-consciousness. Self-consciousness is social and plural and never singular. So while each person fights as if to the death, the struggle does not actually end in death because that would be the end for both self-consciousnesses, both the victor and vanquished. The only way for the situation to be resolved is for one self-consciousness to finally submit to the other, i.e. for one to prove to be more cowardly and weak than the other, and the other less able to put everything on the line in order to win, less willing to risk death itself. So both have survived, and both can acknowledge the other, but a terrible and infinitely fateful asymmetry has entered the equation. The struggle has ended with the complete victory of one over the other. The victor is the master, and the vanquished is slave. The victor has prepared to fight to the death. The vanquished wasn't. He gave up. The victor is courageous and vanquished a coward. The victor is strong, and the vanquished is weak. The master controls the slave, and the slave is controlled. The master is ruled, and the slave is ruled. This struggle has metaphorically been going on since the dawn of humanity. We are all participated in the struggle, and we are now all either masters or slaves. It's easy to know which. If you work for another person, you are a slave. If you are fired, you are a slave. If others control your life, you are a slave. If you are fearful of what others might do, you are a slave. If you have to wait the decisions of others, you are a slave. The freer and the more independent you are, the more you resemble a master. Although it seems that everything is perfectly set up for the master, Hegel says that this, this is not the case. Certainly the master can put the slave to work and live excellently off the slave's hard toil. He can indulge all day long if he wishes while the slave labors from dusk till dawn. The master lives a life of leisure and ease, yet he is dissatisfied. He was hoping for acknowledgement from another self-consciousness, another person, but now he finds it hard to see the slave as anything other than an object. The asymmetry in their relationship means that there is no equality in the recognition from which they fought. The slave hates being viewed as a thing. The master can barely tolerate being looked at by the slave. But a new and amazing dialectic takes over. The master living off the labor of the slave does no work himself, but the slave's work bit by bit changes the environment. Fields are cultivated, buildings are constructed, goods are manufactured. In all of this work, something of the slave is turning into a physical form. His consciousness is being externally objectified. He realizes that he has a mind of his own, that he's capable of creation and of ordering his environment. He becomes proud of his achievements. His self-assurance steadily builds. He no longer feels so wretched and worthless in comparison with the master. When the slave and the master survey the world, the slave sees the fruit of his own work, while the master sees the outcome of another's work. The slave finds that his consciousness is appearing all around him 
in the shape of the work he has performed, he is finding a way to attain recognition and deeper understanding of his own consciousness other than solely through the approval of another self-consciousness. He grows, becomes increasingly skilled. The master, on the other hand, is becoming lazy and inept and none of his own work to show for his time. As the dialectic unfolds, the slave theoretically should become more and more powerful and skilled until he is equal of the master and at that time the master will no longer be able to treat him as anything other than a free man each side has achieved what it wants the slave is no longer deemed less than human the master at last gets the recognition he craves from an equal the master slave dialectic has accumulated in an outcome that preserves the two most valuable features of the dialectic the master's freedom and the slave's skill for work now the slave can enjoy the master's freedom, and the master can acquire the skills of the slave. At least, that's how it's supposed to happen. But what if a group exists, the old world order, that wishes to ensure that the masters always remain on top, and that the slaves remain permanently less than human? Whether we are brave enough or not to acknowledge it, that's the world we live in. Police and soldiers are there to enforce the master's will. Our way of life is inherently based on masters and slaves. We bow to assorted gods like slaves bowing to masters. We bow to monarchs and we into presidents, to the rich and to celebrities, to bosses and to managers. We never tire of bowing to others and getting on our knees. We are controlled at every turn. And isn't it time to unshackle ourselves and to stand up straight for once? So there's a little part of that. And so you can see the book is quite a radical work. It goes on to say and discuss more that it's absurd that we should uh, vote every four years to change the occupiers of the White House, um, and, but we should just tear the White House down altogether and start over. And of course, that's a ridiculous and it's an absurd notion to think that we should just tear our government down every time we wanted to change a law or an administration. In that case, we would have no uh, civilization whatsoever. It would make it very easy for our enemies if we were provoked into this kind of thinking and just burned our own country down. And so we can see that their whole book is fraught with a lot of intellectual entanglements. And it's kind of a, a pseudo-intellectual philosophy. And, and you can see that the whole basis for the, the, the diatribe is, to, is from within the United States. So they're really interested in changing the White House and changing capitalism and burning down the old order of things and they think that this will bring about a new enlightenment and so you can see that it's quite a pedantic kind of sophistry and it has and it's really anarchic rationalism so this is going to be and hegel is, is really pre-communism that's why it's so important that we take a look at this and so you can see that i'm trying to reveal their zeitgeist and they have a really an attitude of grandiose self-enlightenment and we can see in their thinking here that, that Hegel is informing Marx. And this is really, like I, like I said, it's pre-communism. And these are the, the, the underlying philosophical mechanics that are driving neo-revolutionaries like Antifa and the revolutionary abolitionist movement. So what will become more and more clear as we're moving forward is that communism doesn't begin with Marx and Engels. But we, we must recognize the foundations for that were laid by Hegel. And Hegel is at the epicenter of control within the Bavarian Illuminati, which seeks to, through a complete worldview, it wants to move the world toward progressing the revolution and destroying all the old orders that came before it. And we can see this happening, it began to break out in France. And this is a time of, of great distress and upheaval. And today, Spain still has a monarch and still has the, the, the ancient throne of Spain and, and the same in England, retains their monarchy and their throne, but France does not. And ultimately, the French king during the French Revolution was guillotined in the streets. And at this time, 
um, when you know when the Illuminati is trying to, to, to be formed and to take control, you have the American Revolution and in 1776 and in 1773. Just before that, you have the the extinguishing of the Society of Jesus. So a pope is going to come into play, Clement the Fourteenth, I believe, and he's going to banish and destroy and extinguish forever the Society of Jesus, the Jesuits, so that they can never. Uh, again reconstitute ultimately they would though but you can see how much upheaval and how much chaos is taking place in the world and we're really at the point in the age when the old systems are starting to of, of darkness and the dark ages are are beginning to recede and the the enlightenment and the consciousness of the world is starting to to be formed and it's at this time that the illuminati uh, power structure is going to strike so our next piece of literature is called The Owl and the Angel by Oksana Timofey, Senior Lecturer, Department of Political Science and Sociology, European University at St. Petersburg, and that's in Russia, Senior Research Fellow, Institute of Philosophy in the Russian Academy of Sciences. So some of the key words here are Walter Benjamin, Owl of Minerva, Angel of History, Revolution Dialectics. And there's an opening quote by Kirill Medvedev, and it goes like this. Like cabbage heads in some seedbed of hell, they lay looking up at us, the heads of our comrades. Very Russian uh, quotation, I imagine. So we'll go on with the, the literature here. It says, the owl of Minerva is the Hegelian system. The owl of Minerva in the Hegelian system is not just a metaphor, but what one might call a heraldic symbol, existing in a separate category from really existing owls. It represents a simplified image like other heraldic animals, like lions, griffins, falcons, dragons, and so on, whose purpose is to reveal an idea or the essence of a thing. Once it appears in the philosophical bestiary, the owl becomes an irreplaceable, indispensable element in it. And the reader of Hegel is faced again and again with the temptation to lose himself in tracing the trajectory of its twilight flight, since in Oscar Wilde's words, the only way to get rid of a temptation is to yield to it. The ideas inspired by this image have lost none of their immediacy. Even before Hegel introduced the Owl of Minerva into his philosophy in the position of housekeeper, this symbol was in circulation in the culture of Hegel's time and was well known to his contemporaries. Minerva was the name of the renowned historico-political journal edited by Johann Wilhelm Arschlanz. Appearing to the turn of this 19th century, from whose pages Hegel, Holderlin, Schelling, and many other educated, progressively inclined Germans learned about the most recent events in the world. For example, revolution. <clears throat> Not only in France, but in Haiti. The owl perched on an open book served as an emblem of the Bavarian Illuminati, a secret society of the Masonic type founded in 1776 in Ingolstadt, which is in Germany, by the Citizens of Freedom. Adam Weishaupt, according to Jock Johann, author of The Secret Biography of Hegel, the philosopher was loosely involved in the society's activities, though still quite a young man in 1784, when the Bavarian government placed an official ban on the group. Secret societies, secret esoteric societies, such as Freemasons, the Illuminati, and the Rosicrucians, at the time faced the crucial task of fighting ignorance and disseminating the ideas of the Enlightenment. But their were, of course, other reasons for the authorities to fear them. Brotherhood had already materialized as a reality, and, and these closed associations, freedom and equality, were yet to come in the wake of enlightenment. 
understood as general intellectual and spiritual emancipation. There followed ideas of political emancipation, including radical, revolutionary, cosmopolitan, anti-monarchical, and even anarchistic ideas. Amongst other accusations leveled at them, the Illuminati were charged with conspiracy, with the abolition of nation-state as one of their main goals. As a significant symbol, the Owl of Minerva reflects ambiguity of the situation where the ideals of universal knowledge, openness, equality, and freedom demand from their chief adherents. Conversely, a certain amount of secrecy, the observance of occult rituals, the strict hierarchy, and so on, the necessary conspiratorial nature of their subversive activity and conditions of pervasive obscuritanism has correspondingly given birth to the conspiracy theories that explain the lack of transparency in organizations of the Masonic type. As resulting primarily from their evil intentions, whether invoking blood sacrifice or, or a global cabal, in the image of the Owl of Minerva sitting on, the, on a book is embodied the paradox of knowledge itself, necessarily universal and simultaneously necessarily occult. Whether, where there is knowledge, there must be a secret supposed correspondingly to be known. On one hand, the owl is the bird of reason and light, and on the other hand, the ominous, fearful owl of death in Shakespeare's words. It is the ruler of night and darkness in which murderers and sorceries take place. In short, Hegel's owl does not appear from nowhere. In the symbolism of the age, it represents not only reason, but also revolution, around which circles dangerously, with increasingly intensity, the idea of violent revolution. The utter unrevolutionary context into which Hegel suddenly places the owl is thus all the more bewildering. When philosophy paints its gray on gray, then has a shape of life grown old. But philosophy's gray on gray, it cannot be rejuvenated, but only understood. The owl of Minerva spreads its wings only with the falling of dusk. And this is what he writes in the penultimate paragraph of the preface to the philosophy of right. Hegel, thus summoning up his argument that philosophy's task is not to teach the world how it ought to be and give instructions to the state, but comprehend what is and what is, is reason. Hegel's owl, it seems, is no anarchist or revolutionary, no conspirator seeking to change the world, but an old defender of the same state against which she once stood in the name of reason and freedom. Philosophy finds its place within God and the state as the moral universum. More rational than ideals is the gray old reality with which one must become reconciled. The reconciliation is furthermore not renunciation or simply acceptance of the inevitable. Reason is just as little content with the old despair that submits to the view that in this earthly life things are truly bad or at best only tolerable. Thought here they cannot be improved and that this is the only reflection which can keep us at peace with the world. There is less chill in the, in the peace with the world which knowledge supplies. So the peace is by no means coerced. On the contrary, it brings joy to recognize reason as the rose in the cross of the present and thereby to enjoy the present. This is the rational insight that reconciles us to the actual, the reconciliation which philosophy forwards to those in whom there once arisen an inner voice bidding them to comprehend, not only to dwell in what is subjective while they're still retaining subjective freedom, but also to possess subjective freedom while standing in not anything particular, 
but in what exists absolutely. A number of passages in this quotation attract our attention and merit some closer thought. First of all, the rose on the cross is like the owl of Minerva in an equal measure an ambiguous symbol. If the owl evokes the Illuminati, then the rose on the, the cross is the emblem of the Rosicrucians. And Hegel's works are full of deliberate allusions to the secret societies of his time. In their philosophical interpretation, these images take on new and unexpected meaning. However, Hegel is not the sort of author who piles on metaphors gratuitously. So we were saying that Hegel is not the kind of author who piles on metaphors so we'll take in a few more of these excerpts from the owl and the angel and we'll continue here the owl of minerva flying at twilight arrives at just such a picture of completed and thereby comprehensible and accessible time instead of resolving how to take action and creating projects for the organization of the future philosophy takes a look backward acting like a monochrome painting gray on gray nicely captures the graveyard atmosphere as if the dust of ashes drew not a rose, but the owl sitting on the graveyard cross in Caspar David's uh, Friedrich's painting, Owl on a Grave Marker. And move on here. Comey's analysis starts with the concepts of trauma, mourning, and melancholy. The author expands upon these concepts taken from Freud and by applying them to German culture more broadly and German philosophy in particular. The diagnosis declared in the title of mourning and sickness originates in contemporary mass culture. It is the name for the lamentations and collective effect of the, uh, that the media provokes in connection with certain world or national events, such as the death of a celebrity. In Comey's view, the common mournful and melancholic tone of German classical thought is determined by references to a traumatic event which had not taken, which, which had not in fact taken place in Germany. It is the mourning, the loss of something that was never there, revolution. The embodiment of the ideas of the Enlightenment in reality transformed the political life of society in its entirety. And this had, had occurred nearby in France, and the Germans, active readers of magazines and newspapers, had merely obtained it at a safe distance as a people, as a people looking on, and heard his words from a shore secure at a shipwreck far off, in an open sea, drawing lessons from the mistakes of someone else's history. Comey calls this situation when revolution appears not as a really lived experience, but as a sublime spectacle of catastrophe, simultaneously splendid and appealing, a Kantian theater, noting the duality or even duplicity of Kant's position. As we go down, German culture knows revolution only in translation. Comey underscores following Marx, who in the Communist Manifesto, for example, ridicules German philosophers and the literati for their unconvincing attempts to bring the new French ideas into harmony with their ancient philosophical conscience, implemented in the same way in which a foreign language is appropriated, namely by translation. According to Marx, the most important element is lost in translation, namely the class struggle. Political revolution is emasculated by being transformed into a revolution of the spiritual, the spirit of ideas or morals, a conceptual theoretical revolution. Not true requirements, but the requirements of truth are raised up as goals. Not the interests of the proletariat, but the interests of human nature, of man in general who belongs to no such class 
and it has no reality who exists only in the misty realm of philosophical fantasy. So as we're moving forward here, I'll, I'll read another little part. In her discussion of the contemporary translating the French Revolution into the language of German culture and philosophy, Comey frequently notes in his paradoxical nature, the past had not yet occur- occurred here, and but the future is already precluded. Having failed to appear, never having materialized, and nevertheless, nevertheless got left behind. So, <clears throat> as you move forward here, it says, in response to Marx's witty remark in the introduction to his critique of Hegel's philosophy of the right, that the Germans had, have shared the restorations of modern nations without ever having shared their revolutions. So, you can see right away that they had, the European world had viewed the great calamity of the French Revolution and they instinctively knew that it was a it was a philosophical outcropping of the of the Illuminati world revolution and the progressive revolution towards world communism that we would see in the future. So that's why they were saying that the future had not yet come. And it should not escape our attention that it was the will of the Karl Marx said the the literati and the academic world, the the uh, intelligentsia of Europe that was working in this in this uh, world revolution that was inspired by the Illuminati, and it was coming out of the universities and, and the the Bavarian University Ingolstadt was where the the uh, this Jesuit this uh, Illuminati revolution was being developed. So it should not escape our attention that this was an analytic approach to world revolt. And this was at a time when the world was just waking up from centuries of the Dark Ages and was coming into a period of the Renaissance and the Enlightenment. And the world had just was beginning to move towards liberation and freedom. And they were already planning a widespread slave revolt that would bring about not a revolution, but a widespread anarchic revolt. And this was coming out of the universities and out of the intellectual classes and the nobility and the aristocratic elite who are bringing this in, into being. So we'll look at our next piece of literature here. This is a work by Susan Buck Morris in Critical Inquiry, volume 26, number four. And this is in summer 2000 and page 821. And it's called Hegel and Haiti. And all these, um, these texts that I'm reading, you can find openly on the internet. So these are not very difficult to find. That's kind of the point. So as we're looking here, we're going to be dealing in depth with slavery here as a, as a subject matter. And beginning in 1651, Britain challenged the Dutch in a series of naval wars that led immediately to British dominance, not only of Europe, but of the global economy, including the slave trade. At the time, Cromwellian revolution against absolute monarchy and fru- fru- feudal privilege followed Dutch precedent by making metaphorical use of the Old Testament story of the Israelites being freed from slavery. But within political theory, a shedding of ancient scriptures was taking place. The pivotal figure here is Thomas Hobbes. Although Leviathan 1651 is a hybrid of modern and biblical imagery, slavery is discussed, discussed in clearly secular terms. He sees it as a consequence of the war of all against all in the state of nature, hence belonging to the natural disposition of man, involving through his patron Lord Cavendish with the affairs of the Virginia Company that governed a colony in America, Hobbes accepted slavery as an, an, an inevitable part of the logic of power. Even the inhabitants 
of civil and flourishing nations could revert again to see the state of slavery. Hobbes was honest and unconflicted about slavery. John Locke was less so. The opening sentence of Book 1, Chapter 1 of his Two Treatises of Government, 1690, unequivocally, slavery is so vile and miserable in a state of man and so directly opposite to the generous temper and courage of our nation that tis hardly to be conceived that an Englishman such as much less a gentleman should plead for slavery. But Locke's outrage against the chains for all mankind was not a protest against the enslavement of black Africans on New World plantations, least of all in colonies that were British. Rather, slavery was a metaphor for legal tyranny, as it was generally in British parliamentary debates on constitutional theory. A shareholder in the Royal African Company involved in American colonial policy in Carolina, Locke clearly regarded Negro slavery as a justifiable institution and the isolation of the political discourse of social contract from the economy of household production made this double vision possible. British liberty meant the protection of private property and slaves were private property. So as long as slaves fell under the jurisdiction of the household, there was st their status was protected by law. A half century later, the classic understanding of the economy and hence slave owning as a private household concern was blatantly contradicted by new global realities. Sugar transferred the, the West Indian colonial plantations, both capital and labor intensive. Sugar production was pro proto-industrial, causing a precipitous rise and the importation of African slaves and a brutal intensification of their labor exploitation in order to meet a new and seemingly insatiable European demand for the addictive sweetness of sugar. Leading the Caribbean wide sugar boom was the French colony of Saint Domingo that in 1767 produced 63,000 tons of sugar. Sugar production led to a seemingly infinite demand for slaves as well, whose number in San Domingo increased tenfold over the 18th century to over 500,000 human beings within France. More than 20% of the bourgeois was dependent upon slave-connected commercial activity. The French Enlightenment thinkers wrote in the midst of this transformation while they idealized indigenous colonial populations with myths of the noble savage, the Indians of the New World, the economic lifeblood of slave labor was not their concern. Although abolitionist movements did exist at this time, and in France, the Amis de Noir, Friends of the Blacks, decried the excesses of slavery, a defense of liberty on the grounds of racial equality was rare indeed. Man is born free, and everywhere he is in chains. So writes Jean-Jacques Rousseau in the opening lines on the social contract, first published in 1762. No human condition appears more offensive to his heart or to his reason than slavery. And yet, even Rousseau, patron saint of the French Revolution, represses from consciousness the millions of really existing, actual European-owned slaves. As he relentlessly condemns the institution, Rousseau's egregious omission has been scrupulously exposed by the scholarship, but only recently. The Catalonian-born philosopher Louis Salah Molins has written a history of enlightenment thought through the lens of Le Code Noir, the French legal code that applied to black slaves in the colonies drawn up in 1685 and signed by Louis XIV and not definitively 
definitively eradicated until 1848. Sola Malins proceeds point by point through the code, which legalized not only slavery, the treatment of human beings as movable property, but the branding, torture, physical mutilation, and killing of slaves for attempting to, to defy their inhuman status. He juxtaposed this code, which applied to all slaves under French jurisdiction, to the Enlightenment philosopher's texts, documenting their indignation regarding slavery in theory while superbly ignoring slavery in practice. Sal Malins is outraged, and rightly so. In the social contract, Rousseau argues the right of slavery is null, not simply because it is illegitimate, but because it is absurd and meaningless. These words slavery and right, droit, that is law, are contradictory. They are mutually exclusive. Salah Malins makes us see the consequences of this statement. The Code Noir, the most perfect example of this kind of convention in the time of Rousseau, is not a legal code. The right of which it speaks is not a right, as it claims to make it legal that which cannot be legalized, slavery. Thus, he finds it preposterous that Rousseau never in his writings mentions the Code Noir, the one existing fragrant... Fl- Flagrant, flagrant case of what he is declaring categorically, untenably, gets none of his attention. Salomon scrutinizes the texts for any evidence that might excuse his silence and finds unequivocally that Rousseau knew the facts. The Enlightenment, Enlightenment philosopher cited travel literature of the time, Colben on the, the Hottentots, Indians in the Antilles, but avoided those pages of those same accounts that describe the horrors of European slavery explicitly. Rousseau referred to human beings everywhere, but omitted Africans. Spoke of Greenland's people transported to Denmark who died in sadness, but none of, but speaks nothing of the sadness of Africans transported to the Indies that resulted in suicides, mutinies, and maroonings. He declared all men equal and saw property private property as the source of inequality, but he never put two and two together to discuss French slavery for economic profit as central to arguments of both equality and property. As in the Dutch Republic and Britain, African slaves were present, used, and abused domestically within France. Indeed, Rousseau could not not have known that there were boudoirs in Paris where one amuses oneself indiscriminately with, I won't read that. Salomolins pronounces Rousseau's silence in the face of his, this evidence of racist and revolting. Such outrage is unusual among scholars who, as professionals, are trained to avoid passionate judgments in their writing. This moral neutrality is built into the disciplinary methods that, while based on a variety of philosophical premises, result in the same exclusions. Today's intellectual historian who treats Rousseau in context will follow good professional form by relativizing the situation, judging and excusing Rousseau's racism by the mores of his time in order to avoid thereby avoid thereby the fallacy of anachronism, or today's philosopher who is trained to analyze theory totally abstracted from his historical context will attribute a universal universality to Rousseau's writings that transcend the author's own intent or personal limitations in order to avoid thereby the fallacy of reduction ad hominem. In both cases, the embarrassing facts are quietly allowed to disappear. They are visible, however, in general histories of the era where they cannot help 
but be mentioned because when enlightenment theory was put into practice, the perpetrators of political revolutions stumbled over the economic fact of slavery in ways that made their own acknowledgement of the contradiction impossible to avoid. The colonial revolutionaries of America, fighting for their independence against Britain, mobilized Locke's political discourse to their ends. The metaphor of slavery was central to that struggle, but in a new, a new sense. Americans genuinely believed that men who were taxed without their consent were literally slaves since they had lost the power to resist oppression and since def defenselessness inevitably led to tyranny. In invoking the liberties of natural rights theory, the American colonialists as slave owners were led to a monstrous inconsistency. And yet, although some, like Benjamin Rush, acknowledged their bad faith, and, like, and some, like Thomas Jefferson, blamed black slavery on the British, although the slaves themselves petitioned for their liberty and a few individual states passed anti-slavery legislation, the new nation conceived in liberty tolerated the monstrous inconsistency, writing slavery into the United States Constitution. The French encyclopedist Denis Diderot spoke admiringly of the U.S. revolutionaries as having burned their chains and refused, refused slavery. But if the colonial nature of the United States struggle for freedom made it somehow possible to sustain the distinction between the political discourse and the social institutions, in the case of the French Revolution, a decade later, the various meanings of slavery became hopeless, hopelessly entangled when they came up against fundamental contradictions between revolutionary developments within France and developments in the French colonies outside of France. It took years of bloodshed before slavery, really existing slavery, not merely its metaphorical analogy, was abolished in the French colonies. And even then, the gains were only temporary. Although abolition of slavery was the only possible logical outcome of the ideal of universal freedom, it did not come about through the revolutionary ideas or even the revolutionary actions of the French, it came about through the actions of the slaves themselves. The epicenter of this struggle was the colony of San Domingo in 1791, while even the most ardent opponents of slavery within France dragged their feet. The half million slaves in San Domingo, the richest colony not only of France, but of the entire colonial world, took the struggle for liberty into their own hands not through petitions, but through violent, organized revolt. In 1794, the armed blacks of San Domingo forced the French Republic to acknowledge the fait accompli of the abolition of slavery on that island, declared by the French and the colonial commissioners Santhanax and Pereverol, acting on their own, and to universalize abolition throughout the French colonies. From 1794 to 1800, as free men, these former slaves engaged in a struggle against invading British forces, who many of the white and mulatto land-owning colonists of San Domingo hoped would re-establish slavery. The black army, under the leadership of Toussaint Levant, defeated the British militarily in a struggle that strengthened the abolitionist movement within Britain, setting the stage for the British suspension of the slave trade in 1807. In 1801, Toussaint Levant, the former slave and now governor of San Domingo, suspected that the French directory might attempt to rescind abolition, and yet still loyal to the Republic, he wrote a constitution for the colony that was in advance of any such document in the world. If not 
in its premises of democracy, democracy than surely in regard to the racial inclusiveness of its definition of the citizenry. In 1802, Napoleon did move to reestablish slavery and to reestablish co- the Code Noir and had Toussaint arrested and deported to France where he died in prison in 1803 when Napoleon sent French troops under Leclerc to subdue the colony, waging a brutal struggle against black population that amounted to a war of genocide. The black citizens of San Domingo once again took up arms, demonstrating in Leclerc's words, it is not enough to have taken away Toussaint, there are 2,000 leaders to be taken away. On the 1st of January, 1804, the new military leader, slave-born Jean-Jacques Denislan, took the first step of declaring independence from France, thus combining the end of slavery with the end of colonial rule status. Under the banner of liberty or death, these words were inscribed on the red and blue flag from which the white band of the French had been removed. He defeated the French troops, destroyed the entire white population, establishing in 1805 an independent constitutional nation of black citizens and empire, in his own words, mirroring Napoleon's own, which he called by the Arawak name Haiti. These events leading to the complete freedom of the slaves and the colony were unprecedented and ever before had a slave society successfully overthrown its rulers, its ruling class. The self-liberation of the African slaves of San Domingo gained for them by force the recognition of European and American whites, if only in the form of fear. Among those with egalitarian sympathies, it gained them respect as well. For almost a decade before the violent elimination of whites signaled their deliberate retreat from universalist principles. The black Jacobins of St. Domingo surpassed the metropole in actively realizing the Enlightenment goal of human liberty, seeming to give proof that the French Revolution was not simply a European phenomenon, but a world historical in its scope and implications. If we have become accustomed to different narratives, ones that place colonial events on the margins of European history, we have been seriously misled. Events in San Domingo were central to the contemporary attempts to make sense of the reality of the French Revolution and its aftermath. We need to be aware of the facts from this perspective. Let us consider the logical unfolding of the overthrow of slavery in terms of the evolution in consciousness of Europeans living through it. The French revolutionaries understood themselves from the start as a liberation movement that would free people from slavery, the slavery of feudal inequities. In 1789, the slogan, live freely or die, and rather death than slavery was common, and the Marseille denounced uh, slavery in this context. This was a revolution against not merely the tyranny of a particular ruler, but of all past traditions that violated the general principles of human liberty. Reporting on the events in the summer of 1789, the German publicist Johann Wilhelm von Arschlans, from whom we will hear again later, lost his customary journalistic neutrality and exclaimed that the French people who were accustomed to kissing their own chains had, in a matter of hours, broken these gigantic chains with one all-conquering stroke of courage, becoming freer than the Romans and the Greeks were, and the Americans and the British are today. But with but what of the colonies, the source of wealth of such a large part of the French population? The meaning of freedom was at a stake in their reaction to the events of 1789, and nowhere more so than in the crown jewel San Domingo. Would the colonists take after the Americans and revolt, as some of the 
Creole planters of St. Domingo were urging? Or would they join fraternally to proclaim their liberty as French citizens? And if the latter, then who would be included as citizens? Property owners, to be sure, but only whites, mulattoes, owned an estimated one-third of the cultivated land in San Domingo. Ought not they be included, and, and not only they, but free blacks as well, was property or was race the litmus test for being a free citizen of France? Most pertinent, if Africans could, in principle, be included as citizens, if that is the implication, if that is implicitly racist assumptions that underlay the Code Noir, were they not valid, then how could the continued legal enslavement of blacks then be justified? And if it could not, how could the colonial system be maintained? The unfolding of the logic of freedom in the colonies threatened to unravel the total institutional framework of the slave economy that supported such a substantial part of the French bourgeois, whose potential revolution, of course, this was. And yet only the logic of freedom gave legitimacy to their revolution in the universal terms in which the French saw themselves. The Haitian revolution was the crucible, the trial by fire for the ideals of the French Enlightenment. And every European who was part of the bourgeois reading public knew it. The eyes of the world are now on San Domingo. So begins an article published in 1804 in Minerva, the journal founded by Arslans, who had been covering the French Revolution since its beginnings and reporting on the revolution in San Domingo since 1792. For a full year, from, from fall 1804 to the end of 1805, Minerva Publications had continued a, a series of writings totaling more than 100 pages, including source documents, news commentaries, and summaries, eyewitness accounts the, that informed its readers not only of the final struggle for independence of this French colony under the banner Liberty or Death, but of events over the previous 10 years as well. Arslan's was critical of the violence of this revolution, and as he was of the Jacobin terror in the metropole, but he came to appreciate Chasson Levant, publishing as part of his series in German translation a chapter from the new manuscript by a British captain, Marcus Rainsford, who praised Chasson's character, leadership, and humanity in superlative terms. Archelon's journal borrowed, borrowed freely from English and French sources so that it, his account reflected news widely reported to the European reading public. The articles in Minerva were picked up in turn by countless newspapers, a situation of cosmopolitan and open communication despite intellectual property restrictions that has perhaps not been matched until the early internet. Although there was censorship in the French press after 1803, newspapers and journals in Britain in the United States and Poland highlighted the events of the final revolutionary struggle in San Domingo, the Edinburgh Review, among others. Williams Wad William Wadsworth wrote a sonnet entitled to Toussaint Levant, published in Morning Post in February 1803, and in which he deplored the, re the reestablishment of the Code Noir in the French colonies. In the German language press, Minerva's coverage, coverage was special. Although in 1794, two years after its founding, it had established its reputation as the best of its genre of political journals, it strove to be nonpartisan, objective, and factual, aiming at historical truth that would be instructive 
its goal to the journal's motto was to show the very age and body of the time of its form and pressure. By 1798, its circulation was 3,000 copies, respectable in our day for an intellectual series journal, and that number is estimated to have doubted, uh, doubled by 1809. In other words, <clears throat> in the words of Arslan's biographer, Minerva was the most important political journal of the turn of the century, both in terms of quality of content written by regular correspondents who were important public figures in their own right, and the quality of readers among whom were some of the most influential people in Germany, King Friedrich Wilhelm III of Prussia, read Minerva constantly, both Goethe and Schiller read Minerva. The latter corresponded with Arschlans and Schelling Lafayette. And as we know from published letters, was the philosopher Georg Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel. So, and we know later on in history that it was Weishaupt, Hegel, and ultimately, and Goethe, who were going to be the ones who were running the the Illuminati. So Minerva magazine is ultimately a publication and a, a manifesto and, and a propaganda of the Illuminati out of Bavaria. And as we review these writings, <clears throat> we can begin to see how the undercurrent of revolutionary change is not simply an organic occurring reflex of oppression within the human condition, which urges mankind toward personal independence and political liberty but the macrocosm of the human revolution is calculable and it's predictable and carefully applied oppression and inequities can produce a quantifiable result and it is this calculus of human despair that the illuminati proves adept at manipulating hegel informs marx and marx would justify would bring the justification for the absolute state of communism, wherein national and individual borders are ripped down by the brutal state oppression. And these were the instrumentality of the Illuminati, which were used the unrest of the people, multiplied many times by starvation and abuses of the state by the government, which were intentionally. And then, of course, between the French king and the people were many layers of administrators and judges and provosts, who wrought chaos instead of serving the people and the king, they used their position to overturn and flip over the entire French country, the king and the Illuminati. So the Illuminati intentionally crafted the self-detonation of the whole nation by provoking the mob violence and then deliberately provoking a slave revolt in San Domingo. And today we can see the same kind of tactics being used. And interestingly enough, the same kind of um, return to the idea of black people being abused by slavery and we can see that move in the black lives matter movement and antifa working together and we can see that this was originally the intention of the illuminati long ago so that's going to be it for episode three and we hope to see you guys back next time